This episode of Historically Thinking was made possible by a grant from the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California at Berkeley. To learn more, go to ggsc.berkeley.edu. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Back in April, I dropped two podcasts on intellectual humility. The first was with philosopher Michael Patrick Lynch on epistemology in the age of information and the challenges of intellectual humility when confronting what he describes as the Internet of Us. That was followed with a conversation I held with Igor Grossman, a social psychologist who has investigated the concept of intellectual humility as part of his research into how people make sense of the world around them through their expectations, lay theories, metaconditions, or forecasts. Today's podcast is a long-delayed follow-up to those two earlier conversations, making a sort of introductory trilogy to a series on historical thinking and intellectual humility. I thought I should try and make the connection to intellectual humility from historical thinking to be as clear and explicit as I possibly could. And who better to do that than Lendl Calder, the man who first taught me about the concept of historical thinking, and from who I first heard that one of the benefits of historical thinking was intellectual humility. While I was interested in hearing how he had made that connection and how it worked, I began by asking him to review what historical thinking is and where did the concept come from? Historians in the United States, in Canada, in Great Britain, in the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, and uh, Sweden, all in the 1990s, began turning their attention to the problems of historical pedagogy. And independently, these historians began groping towards the idea that we should refocus history education away from just content towards learning how historians think. Um, this probably was influenced by simultaneous investigations being made in social psychology. There's been an off and on again interest in learning how experts think and what defines expertise. And historians picked up on that movement and began trying to define what it is that makes historical thinking different from any other kind of thinking, such as mathematical thinking or natural science thinking or poetic thinking. And I always think, what makes this practice different from any other practice? It's like a stonemason thinking about how am I being a stonemason? What am I doing? How am I, what are, what are the practices I do to be a, a stonemason? It's inhabiting a craft, which you have to do in order to pass on a craft to, to someone else, I think. Yeah, I'd say that's half of it. That's the half that we call competencies of thinking, the doing of something. Um, the other half would be the concepts one needs to be able to do those things or even to want to do them. So when I'm talking about historical thinking, I want to talk about concepts and competencies. 
I, I have to say, there's no universal agreement yet on what historical thinking is. And historical thinking itself is an American construct. The Germans talk about historical consciousness, for example, and that's different. It's overlapping, but different. But here in the States, historical thinking has become the word of art that we use to define or to teach how historians think and how that's different from the way normal people think. Mm -hmm. Or the way that other disciplines think about maybe even the same thing. That's right. Yeah. Or the same object, uh -huh. just in the way that artists and doctors think differently about the same body. That's right. This was brought home to me when I was a fellow at the Carnegie Academy for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning back in 1999-2000. I was just then beginning to grapple with this notion of expertise and thinking and that his historical expertise might be different from other people's kinds of knowledge. And uh, Sam Weinberg was addressing a group of us there at the Carnegie Academy. And he asked for two volunteers to read a historical document. He said, I want the first one to be somebody who's not a historian. So an English professor raised her hand and she went up to the front of the room and gave us a reading of the document. <laughs> and I was sitting with six other historian colleagues and we just started squirming in our chairs as we listened to her read this document because she was reading it so poorly and in all the wrong ways. We, were, we could hardly contain ourselves. But that... That's the point Sam wanted to make that day is that disciplinary traditions read, they think differently about the world. Yeah. And you always quoted that, that Collingwood thing about seeing a tiger in the grass, isn't it? That was R.G. Collingwood. R.G. Collingwood, yeah. British philosopher who specialized in the nature of historical consciousness. Yeah. He said the historian is related to non-historians the way of expert woodsman is related to tourists and the tourist walks to the forest and says oh look at that pretty sunlight in the grass and the woodsman says there's a tiger in the grass the woodsman can see things that the tourist can't see and in the same way historians see things in the documentary record or just in the world that other people aren't trained to see my my augustana college anecdote that supports that. I think I told you this was Ruben Heine, colleague in, in geography. He was down right. in the bottoms along the Mississippi, just uh, south of the, where the, the Rock River comes into the Mississippi with a colleague from the biology department. I forget who it was, but it was an ornithologist. And Ruben was listening to pretty bird song. And he very proudly said, I think I, I can tell that there are three or four birds here. And the colleague cocked their head and said, I hear 35. <laughs> <laughs> which is such an odd, that's like a real world calling example yeah. that calling would think that person just could hear more. They heard yeah. the same sounds. Yeah. The ornithologist could hear more. Yeah. And in a similar way, historians, um, see more, or maybe we should say see differently, see differently. than English professors or biology professors. There's no agreement today on the nature of historical thinking. When I first began trying to define it so that I could teach it, we didn't have what we have now, which is quite a bit of writing about 
the nature of historical thinking. So in the beginning, I was just piecing it together really by myself. Later came marvelous work done by Sam Weinberg here in the United States, a cognitive psychologist. Canadian historians led by Peter Satius did great work. A famous article is, was published called The Five C's of Historical Thinking by historians Flannery and, and Burke. Flannery and Burke, that sounds like a woolen trade company for knitters. <laughs> uh, I, I came out with my version of historical thinking. And then later, now we're talking about 2010 or so, the American Historical Association crowdsourced basically and answered the question, what does it mean to think historically by simply gathering hundreds of college and university history professors and having them sit down at round tables and hash it out. And that helped us come to some understanding and some agreement on the basics of historical thinking. And then the Social Science Research Council and the AHA cooperated on a project to try to, to do research, actually, on how the concept of historical thinking has evolved over time. And Tracy Steffes and I wrote an article on that, which I think is personally the gold standard in trying to define what historical thinking is. And we defined it as a set of six concepts and six competencies. My concepts would be things like, what is the nature of history? And a historian has to learn that concept because it's very different from what people just out on the street think history is. Most people think history is basically what happened. And the job of a historian is simply to determine what happened. And if that's true, history teaching looks like traditional history teaching. If history is just what happened. The job of the teacher is to tell students what happened. And of course, this is what the Florida legislators written into law in their state, that history is this one story, what happened, and the job of teachers to teach students that story and none others. But what if the nature of history is very different from that? We can't really know history as it happened. Only God could know that. So history is an interpretive act. That's the concept that's in a historian's mind when it comes to thinking about the past. That history is an interpretive act. It has to be. It can't be any other way. And being an interpretive act, that means history is an argument without end. We don't come to an agreement on some of the bigger questions that we have about the past. And history changes over time because new evidence comes to light. New concerns come to the fore based on contemporary events, which causes us to ask different questions about the past. So history as a concept to a historian is something that's mutable, changing up for discussion, which makes it exciting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if that's true, then history teaching looks very different from a stand and deliver type lecture. You've got to give students the ability to do their own histories based on material from the past so that they can learn what history is not. Not certain, not absolutely definitive, except, except on the most minute questions. Yeah, on, on sometimes really banal questions. Now, sure. Admittedly, sometimes it's really hard to find the answers when you're doing classical or medieval history <laughs> to those, like, mm -hmm. to even who or what and when. But for the most part, once you've nailed those down, that none of that answers why. 
Right. And we're really interested in, we're humans, we're interested in why. And what does it mean? Yeah, and what does it mean? Yeah. So anyway, we, teaching history, I want to teach uh, students certain concepts about the past and also certain competencies, things that they can do uh, with these concepts. And the competencies that I teach, there's six of them. It, and here my frame of reference is introductory history courses that are often required for students in general education courses. I want to teach them six, I call them heuristics. A heuristic is a fancy social psychology word for mental habits that experts acquire in the course of becoming experts. These habits become so ingrained in an expert that the expert forgets they ever learned to do these heuristics, which is one of the reasons why experts often are terrible teachers. Um, they had come to believe that the little mental shortcuts and habits that they've acquired are natural. They forgot they learned them and they, thinking that they're natural, then they believe everybody else already has them and don't, they don't need to be taught. If, if, you, if anybody's ever driven a, a stick shift, you know what I'm talking about. It, at first, it's incredibly difficult to drive a manual transmission. After five years, when you're an expert at it, you forget that you ever really learned to do that. It's just natural. And then you try to teach somebody the else that is struggling with it. You think, oh, they're clumsy or they just aren't trying hard enough. And then you try to teach it to your 16 year old. <laughs> and you get really mad yeah, fast because, because you, you forget yeah. how hard that was to learn and, and what you, the little tricks are. You so inhabit it that you cannot explain it unless you step, unless you have to go through the very difficult process of stepping back outside yourself and relearning how to do it. Yeah. So. Giving some thought to this, what did I learn to do in graduate school and in, in the years that I've been working as a historian? I came up with six heuristics that I felt students could benefit from just out in the world as citizens, as in the workforce, and in their relationships. And these six heuristics, I'll just run through them right quick because I know we want to talk about just one part of it. They begin with questioning. Historians ask different kind of questions than mathematicians and biologists ask. So you need to, to learn what those kind of questions are. To answer them, historians plunge themselves into evidence. And they, so the second heuristic is learning to connect pieces of evidence together, to see the connections between things. And what connecting looks like in practice is comparing things contrasting pieces of evidence to see where they disagree or corroborating evidence is a form of connecting things. And I want to teach students to do that. A third heuristic and one that um, some experts say is most characteristic of historians is called sourcing. Historians learn to be very skeptical and inquisitive about the sources of information they use because all information comes to us from some human source, and that human source does not have direct access to the truth of the universe. It's biased, it's motivated, it's intentional. And so historians want to look behind a source to learn what those motivations were that produced it. The best sources in the world were our mothers. On Friday night, we'd come down the stairs and out the garage and Mom would shout out, where are you going? And we'd say, out. 
She'd say, with who? That's sourcy. We'd say, friends. She'd say, what friends? Want to know their names? That's sourcy. You know, you, you want to know who you're hanging out with when you're reading things because they can't be trusted. A fourth heuristic is storytelling. That's something I think makes historians different from just about everybody else. We make sense of things by telling stories about it. That's different from mathematical thinking or scientific thinking. And then finally, historians learn to make arguments. And here I teach students that historical claims have to be based on evidence. I teach them to consider multiple perspectives when they're looking at evidence instead of settling for the first interpretation that they chance upon. And then finally, I want to teach students to recognize that we can't know everything about the questions we're asking, that there finally are limits to what can be known. I talk about that as a, a limits to knowledge issue, but basically what we're talking about here is humility and recognizing that all one's claims, even the ones that you hold with the most conviction, are ultimately provisional and subject to change. That brings us very nicely to where I wanted to go with the conversation, since this is part of our continuing series on intellectual humility and historical thinking. You mentioned just those three things. If people go to the web on the show notes, the website, I've got a list of 12 moves or cognitive skills in historical thinking, which was I took from Lundell something like eight years ago. And you probably changed your mind about some of them, but this, none of these things are set in stone, so these 12 will work. Three of those are what you just mentioned. Evidence, how do I know what I claim to know about my question? Multiple perspectives, how might others plausibly interpret this evidence differently? And awareness of limits, what do I not know that I need? What, pro what problems remain? Once you start to consider questions of evidence, It seems to me you're already should be in the region of intellectual humility. You have to begin to consider the fact that new evidence might emerge. That's right. And that might invalidate the evidence that you have. Someone might dig something up in Pompeii. Someone <laughs> might find something, you know, uh, someone might find a different account of something that happened at the Battle of Saratoga. That happened to me that someone was not where I thought they were, or not just me, someone was not where 150 years worth of historians thought that they were. Go on with this. Sometimes new evidence might emerge. Once you start considering evidence, you should be in the realm of intellectual humility, even before you get to multiple perspectives and awareness of limits. Intellectual humility is not on this list. As I said, it, it, but I know that you landed on intellectual humility early on for as long as I think I've known you. I've heard you talk about historical thinking, you've been suggesting that intellectual humility should be an outcome or an epiphenomenon, maybe. I'm not sure what to call it, of historical. I, I wonder why yeah, that, I'm starting to wonder why that is. Yeah, my understanding of historical thinking has changed over time. In recent years, I've put a greater and greater emphasis on storytelling, for example, that just I didn't even have on my list of things to teach. 25 years ago. But 
yeah, intellectual humility was on there from the very beginning. And I think there are probably a couple of reasons for that. One was personal. Another was because of the nature of historical study. And a third was also personal. I think one of the greatest events of my lifetime was the fall of the Soviet Union. 1989 to 1991. I was in graduate school then. And what struck me at the time, as incredible, was how no expert that I knew saw that coming. The only person who ever saw that coming, really, and, and was public about it, was Ronald Reagan. You're and right. I was not a big fan of Ronald Reagan in 1989. I, I had the same opinion about Reagan that most of my fellow grad students and professors had. We thought of him as an ignoramus, a washed-up actor. It was embarrassing that he'd been president of the United States to me. But here he called it right on the fall of the Soviet Union. And no Sovietologist I was aware of had seen it coming. I remember at the time, even though I didn't like Reagan very much, I just took that as an object lesson and not why I have, you just have to keep your mind open to new ideas, even if they seem crazy sometimes. I think the second reason why I wanted to put intellectual humility on the list from the early on was I, I just think most People studying to be historians learn that what people thought 500 years ago isn't what we think now. Thinking changes over time. And that's true of historians too. What historians were writing about slavery 100 years ago is totally different from what we say about it now. Well, if that's true, then it follows that the things we believe with convictions today probably are not going to be thought a hundred years from now. And people look back on us and think, what were they thinking? And that just seemed obvious to me. The more I trained as a historian in grad school, it made me want to be careful and humble about anything I had to say. And then finally, I, I think my personal religious upbringing had something to do with this. I read a lot of the Bible as a kid and young man and I remember being much impressed with St. Paul's teaching that we see through a glass darkly. We don't see things in the world, or the, certainly in the next world, with any great degree of clarity. And, and so we have to be humble about what we think and, and ready to change our minds when presented with, with new evidence or a new movement of the Spirit if you're a believer. So those three things made me very receptive to a small part of a model of argument that I studied back in graduate school and brought with me into my college teaching. And this is Stephen Toulman's model of argument. Toulman has a model of argument that where he schemifies out all the essential moves that one makes to do a persuasive argument. And 
towards the end of these moves, his model recommends that you search for the limits to your claim. And that notion that every claim needs to be limited struck me as being extremely important. And I lifted it out of the Toolman model of argument and made it one of my, part of my heuristics of historical thinking. Um, early on, when I was working with you, when I was at Augustana where, College, where you are, one of the sort of blurbs or pieces of information that we wrote for students about what history would do for them emphasized historical thinking would, among other things, help them be good citizens. And as I re have read in the literature, uh, intellectual humility been written by philosophers, social psychologists, hang out with people who are interested in this stuff again and again. They bring up the idea intellectual humility should help an idea of civic understanding and of civic participation. So I once again, I was struck by, I felt, oh, I said, I've been thinking about that for a while. I feel ahead of the curve. So again, Wendell, you were just, you were ahead of your time and didn't even realize it. But that was, but it was interesting. No, I, that I was, was not ahead of my time. I was, feel like I was slow to catch up. But it was, I, I would just say that it was this, but this was very much out of the idea that, and people still have this, that we teach civics and this is the left or right. You teach certain things about justice or patriotism or abolitionism you know, or the yeah. three branches of government or protest. And that's how you make good citizens. But it's back to where we began, where we started the conversation. There's habits of the mind disposition, which also need to be shaped and formed to, by historical thinking, which also help create good citizens. Yeah, this idea has a long history. The poet Keats was talking about it in the 19th century. I he think Aristotle of, was talking about it too. Yeah, of course. Keats' writings are a little bit inscrutable, but he talked about the importance of having a negative capability. Would, would does that mean anything to you, Al? Uh, negative capability? I think it did at one point, but now it does not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I say it's a little bit inscrutable. I, I, that is a, uh, a tough con. The concept makes no sense on the face of it, right? And he didn't do much to explain it in that particular letter, but he said that people need to have a negative capability so that they aren't always irritably reaching after facts. <laughs> negative capability is the ability to live contentedly and happily, even in the absence of certainty. And an irritable reaching after facts reminds me of the way people operate on social media today in our current culture wars. That they, they, they crave certainty for their side and they achieve it with an irritable reaching after facts, yeah. any facts, facts, plucks, totally out of context, usually with facts tweet, misunderstood, whatever. Usually with a tweet so that was against that. historian here. Yeah. Yeah. I think in another letter, he spoke of the burden of mystery. Now I think that's, and, and that's the same idea. I think that's a better phrase and we should be when talking about Keats in this matter, we should use that phrase, the burden of mystery. I love that. Yeah. I've been recording a bunch of 
30-minute conversations with historians, uh, which will follow this conversation week after week for the rest of the year. And I'm asking them about their awareness of limits. And I'm asking them how they got it wrong. What have they changed their mind about? And the result is a mixed bag. It's interesting, and I shouldn't be, I'm not as cynical as I think, that they don't often, unless pressed, talk about their historical scholarship as places they might. They might talk about race in the United States. They might talk about their political view. They might talk about things in their personal life. But it's interesting that they don't immediately go to that thing which they actually might know best, (laughs) at least intellectually. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that, or should I be surprised by that? I don't know. What do you think? It's hard to temper conviction with humility. I think one of your other guests spoke to this. It's easy to be humble about other people's beliefs. (laughs) But when you have deeply researched something and are basically the world's expert on it, yeah, then it's hard to temper the convictions you formed while engaging in the decade-long investigation. It's hard to temper those convictions with the sense that you might be wrong. 50 years from now, people might see it really differently. I began thinking about this this whole project by thinking about the sociologist Peter Berger, mm-hmm. who spent the first half of a very long life, intellectual life, as an advocate of the secularization thesis. But the second half, explaining in detail why the evidence was good for his opinion, but ultimately it didn't pan out and he was wrong. And here's why. Yeah. yeah. Now that reminds me of somebody like Whitaker Chambers. That's so weird. I just talked about Whitaker Chambers earlier today in a completely huh. different record. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Some people have that experience of changing their minds on their basic convictions about the world, and, and then other people don't. Yeah, but it's interesting that you bring that because Chambers was deconverting from communism to becoming a Quaker eventually. Yeah. So it's interesting that you compared that your mind went from Peter Berger refuting his theory for which he was one of the major pillars. Right. To a religious conversion. So are you saying that when we change our minds as historians or as intellectuals, we actually go through a conversion? No, that's an interesting thought. I'm sure it has some similarities to the conversion experience, but probably also some differences. I have to think about that. Yeah, I did the whole the actual the phrase conversion is a wonderful book on this. I'll put it in the show notes to find it. I'm afraid it's in a storage locker somewhere, but Conversion begins as a concept before Christianity as philosophical conversion. So when people were describing the Christian conversion process in the early church or from the out, from the outside, I think they were seeing something that they could best, a sophist becoming a Platonist or a vice versa. Would that change how you live? And would that have a sort of practical difference for everyday life? Religious well, conversion involves so. repentance so that you change. Yeah things you're doing and you start doing it differently. 
I'm not sure that all um, intellectual conversions where you first you believed X about something and then change your mind with new evidence and start believing Y, that, that doesn't really lead you to do anything differently. So not, that'd be no. a difference. Not, for Plato, yes. For Peter Berger, no. I, I don't see in the modern conception of intellectual life, it means you just write a new book. Yeah. <laughs> Which can be a big deal. <laughs> don't read any of my previous books. <laughs> Stuff <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> Um, but I, to press this, what I was speaking with a group about how I was approaching this project, I casually mentioned that I wasn't going to record any conversation, untenured professors or juniors dollars about how they, they mind. And people who were not academics or hadn't been academics, they were like, why wouldn't you? You should. Mm -hmm. I was like, I couldn't do that. You see what I'm talking about. You see what I mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Because we don't need that much truth, I think, in our life. <laughs> no, and it speaks to your point that it's not, I think almost every historian I know would say, yeah, sure, intellectual humility is a good thing. And it's a good thing to change your mind in practice. We don't really honor that. We don't hold up for public praise somebody who's changed their convictions about the world or about a particular historical topic. I think that kind of conversion gets tougher as historians move in the direction of history for social justice or history for identity. It's one thing to say, yeah, okay, I was wrong in my interpretation of the Carolingian era. It's another thing to say, I was wrong about believing that society was divided between the 1% and the 99%. I just was wrong about that. And we don't need a revolution in this country. I was wrong to think so back in the 60s. That's a hard ask because now you're, you're not just speaking about ideas, but about identity. Your identity as a socialist or your identity as a social justice warrior. That's really hard to change. But we're back to that. That, that is, and then that is, a, then that will then feel like a conversion. Then we are back to yeah. Whitaker Chambers' example. Or, yeah. or a better example, the historian of slavery. Help me with the name now. Gene Genovese. Yeah, Gene Genovese. Although I don't think he changed his mind. <laughs> slavery, but he would stop, stop being a Stalinist. That's true. He did yeah. stop being a Stalinist. I was present the night he announced that. Oh, yeah. He was giving a speech at the University of Chicago. The department was interviewing him actually for a job, which they didn't give him. But that night in a public speech, he announced for the first time that he was no longer a, a socialist and explained that it was his historical training that had led him to this. He said, I, looking around the world, I just can no longer believe that society is based on a socialist model, the teachings of Marx and Lenin, that they are morally superior to societies based on a biblical model, I think was the word he used. Huh. And, oh yeah, he caught some flack in the question and answer, I'll tell you. Pretty good. Um, I won 
last question before we finish this. Our friend Leah Shopko wrote a great book. Mm-hmm. In the show notes, it was episode which I called The Saint, the Count, and the Sourcing, which yeah. was a wonderful history and story of an incident between a saint and the count, which she then gave a masterclass in sourcing. And the book made me, I think I said to you when it came out, geez, I wish there was a whole series of books like this, each one devoted to a different historical skill. I've given thought to it, but I I was wondering if we wanted to write a book that's devoted to awareness of limits, what would we focus on? Or even better yet, how would we construct it? And I've given some thought. I think that I, sometimes on the podcast, I'll say, got someone a revisionist book which most his, his, histories are or should be revising something and i will ask them please before we as we begin give me the received common received view the crv mm-hmm. i think that if we were doing a book that was focused on awareness limits and teaching awareness limits, at least the first chapter should be the common received view told as eloquently and with as much supporting evidence as possible I think that's where I would start. Yeah. That's an interesting question, Al. Um, and this book does not exist. It does not exist. Somebody who needs to, to do it now that you mention it. Yeah. Um, here's a project for us coming up. <laughs> <laughs> I think for a topic to investigate that would get this point across, I, I don't think you could pick a better one right now than the origins of COVID. Really? Wow. Yeah. You're I mean, a, boy, you've got a cast iron chest. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> what, where did the COVID virus come from and how did it make the leap from animal to human? Now, that only happened four years ago, but that's a historical question. Yeah. And the answer to it is surprisingly complex, interesting, and finally unknowable at yeah. this point. And it appears to me like it's going to be unknowable for a long time. Right. There are like three plausible explanations for the origin of COVID and and none of them have the evidence behind them that one would need to feel any kind of certainty about your view. Yeah. So that that would be a, a chance to display self critical understanding, emitting contrary evidence. Yeah. Qualifying arguments and recognizing limits to knowledge. Yeah, and it's following advice given by a Harvard professor back at uh, the turn of the 20th century. They were debating general education then, and the sociologist uh, that you might have heard of, William Graham Sumner, his contribution to this debate was he said, every student during his academic period ought to get up one bit of history thoroughly from the ultimate sources in order to convince himself what history is not, (laughs) meaning not certain, not authoritative. And Sumner meant this as a dig at history. He wanted to move history out of the general education program because he he regarded historical knowledge as inferior to sociological knowledge, which was scientific and knowable. But he's actually true in that statement. That is why we should ask students to get up history themselves, do it themselves, 
is so that they can understand what history actually is. A highly desirable form of knowledge, but one that is not certain in any kind of mathematical sense. That's a good quote for a historically thinking coffee mug. History is a highly desirable form of knowledge, but not a certain one. Most historians who've done laborious research that might require them to learn multiple dead languages and forgotten systems of handwriting, who've pieced together different accounts of the same event that all seem to contradict, who have struggled to understand the motivations of just one person, let alone a family or a group, or the meaning of an event, they all realize that to be true. They know it not only intellectually, but viscerally, deep in their gut. They can even smell it. And the smell is the dust of the archive, a smell that even the most hygienic and air-conditioned facilities retain. But as we discussed, recognizing limits to knowledge is a difficult thing. But how difficult? I think we'll see that in the months to come in a series of interviews I began recording earlier this year with a wide variety of historians whom many listeners to the podcast will recognize from previous episodes. As I discussed with Professor Calder, all of them are senior scholars. All of them, if they have an academic appointment, have tenure. But most importantly, they have a body of work in their past. Some of them have written so many books that they are now attached to them, perhaps because they've forgotten some of the titles. This gives them perspective on their work, about what they've gotten right, and what they wish they could now edit or even remove. These are conversations unlike any I've ever had before. Typically, I develop a set of 8 to 12 waypoints, which I give to guests beforehand. They're not really questions, but they are places in a conversation I'd like to go. Admittedly, we rarely get to all of those waypoints, because the course of a conversation, as in a walk, takes us to new and interesting places to see and find out about that weren't anticipated when we began the conversation. But this time I came up with a set of questions which I have given to each of my conversation partners, which to my mind, that makes them more interviews than conversations. However, as best as I'm able, when I hear some hesitation or thoughtfulness, I try to loop back and ask the question in a different way or ask a follow-up question. The result will be a collection of about 20, 30-minute conversations, an audio archive of historians thinking about their work, about what they've gotten wrong, and what they've gotten right. I think you'll find them interesting just for themselves, but I'm also hopeful that social psychologists might find them to be a useful repository of information from which to theorize and conduct further studies on history and intellectual humility. But that's all to come. From here on out, each of these short conversations of about 30 minutes will be dropped on Thursdays. We'll begin the series next week with a conversation I recorded with Jonathan Zimmerman, professor of history and of education at the University of Pennsylvania, who's been on the podcast twice and who I think has some very interesting things to say and, as always, is very winsome and engaging in the way he says them. Please let me know what you think of the series, and better yet, if the concept of intellectual humility resonates with you, let me know and tell me why please send an email to alz at historicallythinking.org. That's alz at historicallythinking.org and put intellectual humility in the subject line. Until next week.